The reason that I've chosen this topic to speak on this evening is that I am convinced that in spite of the reproach of the world, one who is a Christian will continue to set a good example and must remain faithful to the Almighty God. In doing so, and when we live lives like this, others in the world might look upon our behavior as being holier than thou and take it as a condemnation in their life. But even if this is true, it must not deter the child of God from living a righteous life regardless of what the world might think. Noah is a wonderful example of one who is best remembered for the things that he had done in obedience to God. He was a man that was in the minority and stood alone amidst a world and a population of people who were completely diametrically opposed to all of the values that he stood for and the things that God would instruct him to do in his life. And thus he stands as one of those good examples for those who would learn how it is that we must please God even if we live in the minority. Back in our text in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews and verse number 7, we find that the writer there said, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. I think it's important that you and I understand the concept of condemnation by its definition. Condemned as defined, I understand, is defined like this. It is by one's good example to render another's wickedness more evident. That's exactly what happened in the days of Noah. His righteous life made the wickedness that was all around him more evident. I would invite us all now for a little while to discuss how it truly is that a Christian, a child of God today, by the life that he or she lives, truly condemns the world. First of all, we notice by way of an example, and we want to delve a little further into the example of Noah. We find that he condemned the world. But how so? How did he condemn the world by his actions and by his life? First of all, we find that Noah's stand with God was clear. You know, I wonder if that could be said about all of us. I wonder if people can look at my life and be able to say, like we could say of Noah, that his stand with God was clear. I will tell you this. By the way that you live, by the decisions that you make, which will form you, mold you, and make you, and define you, I would say that that determines whether or not your stand with God is clear or not. Or, as some Christians' lives are as such, the world might look upon their life and be surprised when they find out that he is a Christian. They're surprised when they find out that they come down here and worship with God's people because their lifestyle, their stand with God is not clear. Oh, but Noah was different. Noah, in the midst of a world that was filled with wickedness, his stand with God 
was clear. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, the Bible says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In verse number 6 of the very same chapter, it says this as a result of what God had seen in the creation that he had made. The Bible says it repented the Lord that he made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. Then again in verse 7, it says, And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Then we find those words as found in verses 8 and 9. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. You know why Noah walked with God? Because his stand with God, as we mentioned a moment ago, was clear. It was evident. It was not only evident to God Almighty, but it was evident and it was clear to the entire world as well. And then we find as God looks upon this creation that he made, as he looks upon man and he finds, oh, it wasn't man just overtaken in faults from time to time, much like when he destroyed the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, they couldn't find 10 righteous people in those cities. But here we find that the thoughts of man's heart was evil continually and God had enough. He said, I'm going to cause it to flood. I'm going to make it rain, and I'm going to destroy all that I have created. For the Bible says it repented God that he had created man when he looked and saw the corruptness of him. You know, when God looked down upon man, you know what he found? He found that man was corrupt, filled with violence, filled with all of those things that are opposite of being a godly person. But I want you to know this. Contrary to the world, these people were not in sin, and they did not have these lifestyles because they were born that way. God did not create them that way. But God, as we go back all the way to the creation, the Bible says when God created everything in six days, on the seventh day he rested, but when the time it was that God was finished and his work was complete, the Bible says he sat back as it were and looked at all that he had created and said, behold, it was very good. So what happened? Well, we know in the account of Adam and Eve cast out of the garden, but what happened? What happened from the time that they were cast out of the garden and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth? What happened in those few chapters in the book of Genesis that changed everything that went from a creation that was very good to one that was so corrupt that God said, I'm going to destroy the whole business. I'm going to destroy the whole matter, except for you, Noah, and those eight souls. You're going to build an ark, and you're going to do exactly what I've said, because the Bible says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You know what happened with man? 
No, they weren't created that way. They weren't born that way. They weren't made that way. The Bible says that all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. That's what happened. You know what happens when a man sins? A man sins when he's drawn away with his own lusts, with and by his own lusts, and he is enticed. You know, we've talked about this in times past. Temptation is not a sin. Giving in to the temptation is a sin. But temptations are not sinful, or else Jesus could not have lived a perfect life. Because Jesus was tempted in all points like you and I are, and yet without sin. Oh, indeed, this was a man, Noah, that was righteous in the eyes of God. God says, I'm going to destroy the earth. You're going to build an ark. This is how big it's going to be. This is what you're going to make it with, and this is what you're putting in it. And he did so for about 100 years or so. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 22, the Bible says, Thus did Noah... According to all that God had commanded him, so did he. From the time of the warning until the time of the flood, as I mentioned just a moment ago, around a hundred years, and this showed where he stood with what the Lord wanted him to do regardless of the thinking of the world. Also during this time, we find that Noah did other things too. Not only did he build the ark, but the Bible says he was a preacher of righteousness. A preacher of righteousness during this time. Now then. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> In 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, Peter said, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. After the flood, notice the very first act of Noah an act of worship to God, an act of service to God. The Bible says in the 8th chapter of the book of Genesis in the 20th verse that Noah builded an altar up unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and every fowl and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds went forth out of the ark. Okay, so what's the question before us? The question is not did he condemn the world, for the word of God tells us he did so. The question is, how did he do it? Did he sit in a position of authority? Like Daryl talked about this morning, those of us that stand here, we're only elevated, literally, just so that you can see me and I can see you and I can project my voice a little better, though I don't have a whole lot of trouble projecting my voice. But that's the whole purpose of standing in this position is so that we can be heard and seen and be more effective as a speaker. But notice, it is never the point that a person sits in a position that he has elevated himself and points the finger of scorn at another. Oh no, condemning the world does not mean that. And that's not what Noah did either. He did not build himself a position where he could stand upon and point the finger of scorn at all of those that he knew that God was going to destroy in the flood. Number one, I submit to you first of all that Noah did so in four ways. Number one, Noah was right, and because Noah was right, then all others were automatically and necessarily wrong. 
He never had to say one word of condemnation to the world. Specifically speaking, he would speak what God had instructed him to do. When people would ask him, what are you doing that for, Noah? He could speak the truth. He could speak about what God was going to do to the world. He could speak of this flood. He could speak of this ark. He could speak of the things that God had instructed him to do if he so chose to as a preacher of righteousness. And just the simple fact that he was right and they were wrong condemned them. If Noah was right and all about him, there should have been those that were helping him build the ark. But very sadly, as happens in the world today, they didn't believe the preacher. Again, the word condemned as defined is by one's good example to render another's wickedness more evident. Secondly, though, here's another way that Noah condemned the world. He condemned the world because of his respect for God and his will. When God had great respect, or Noah had great respect for God and his will... That very act right there condemned the vain confidence of the wicked world that was around him. You know, they might have said this. I don't know. But they might have said, what's a flood, Noah? What are you talking about? It's never happened before. Maybe they would say things that are very familiar to us today. Maybe they would have said, leave us alone. We're happy like we are. And so his, his obedience and his respect for God and his will condemned the vain confidence of the world around him. Thirdly, we find that his faith condemned their unbelief. Examples of the things that they might have said regarding this. They might have said, Noah, you are saying that we're wrong and you're right. You don't understand. We are all honest and sincere. But finally, Noah's obedience condemned their disobedience and their rebellion as well. You know, I would imagine that they would say something along this line. You can't tell me what to do. I don't have to listen to that. I'm not required to do that. I'm my own man. I don't even believe that there is a God, much less one that would destroy the world with the flood. Oh, by the life he lived, by the actions that he did, by the things that he chose and his decisions that he made, he condemned the world because of his acts of obedience. Another example of one that was condemning another because of the righteousness that he had done in his life. We all know the story as found in the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis where we have the story of Cain and Abel, a wonderful example along this very line. You remember that after Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, they had two sons, and those sons' names were Cain and Abel. And the Bible says that Abel was a keeper of the sheep, while Cain was a tiller of the ground. And the scripture says that in the process of time, Cain brought forth fruit from the ground as an offering to the Lord, and Abel brought forth of the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. And the Bible says the Lord had respect unto Abel and for his offering and sacrifice. But unto Cain, he had not respect. You know, there's nowhere in God's word in that whole story where we find that Abel went and rebuked his brother. Where Abel went, I told you so. Shame on you for what you've done. No, 
But because of what Abel had done, and because his sacrifice and his offering was respected in the eyes of the Lord, the Bible says that Cain was wroth and his countenance fell. You know, the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? What are you so angry for? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do right, shouldn't good things be? And so on. Shouldn't it be good for you if you have done that which is right? But if you have done that which is wrong, the Lord said, sin lieth at the door. And we know the story. Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And when they were in a field, Cain rose up against him and slew him. In summary of that, Abel's righteous conduct served as condemnation of Cain's unrighteous, faithless conduct. Well, now I submit to you this, that you and I as Christians are also against the world. I don't say this contradicting anything Daryl said because I'm saying this along with what Daryl said. This is absolutely true. We are in the soul-saving business. That's true. We have to be part of the world in that we're not from it. We don't exist from it. We're not cast out from it. But we have to be in it in order that we might save the world. So when I make this statement, I'm not saying anything different than what he said. I'm saying the very same thing. But I will tell you this. By the righteous conduct of the Christian, we condemn the world. You know, sometimes we might get accused of having an attitude or whatever. But folks, as long as we have the right heart and speak the truth and love and live the Christian life, there are going to be people that are not going to like it. There's going to be people that are not going to like you and befriend you. There's going to be people in your life that were once close to you, that were, that were dear friends of yours. Maybe you sat down and you, you made a commitment to each other that you'd always be friends. Maybe you met early in your life. Maybe you said, we'll be best friends forever, regardless of any of our circumstances, regardless of anything that takes us in this world, we're still going to be friends. And then you obey the gospel, get serious about your Christian life, and just maybe they no longer like you. Today, Christians are against the world. An example of this, believing wives, for example, or believing husbands, their behavior may well cause an unbelieving companion to recognize his or her lost condition and obey the gospel as a result. In 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Peter said, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation or the manner of life of the wives." while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. The godly life of a Christian condemns the ungodly life of a non-Christian. Hear what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 now, beginning in verse 12. Paul said, But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were their children unclean. 
but now are they holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath, hath called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband, or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? There is two things that we have to say before we go any further about that passage of Scripture that the Apostle Paul did in fact write by divine inspiration to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Some people would say, you see, it says these are the things that he spoke and not the Lord. In other words, some would say this was Paul's opinion. And therefore, because it was Paul's opinion, because the Lord never said those things, then it is something we can take or we can leave. That is not what Paul was saying. You see, Paul was dealing with the marriage relationship. And the marriage relationship was with a Christian, with a non-Christian here. What did Jesus talk about? He simply said Jesus never referred to a relationship of Christian and non-Christian. Jesus only dealt with the relationship of a Christian married to a Christian. That's number one. Second thing we must take from this. This is not Paul's authorization to meet someone and marry them out of the church. That is not what he's saying here either. He's not saying go ahead and choose a wife or a husband that's out in the world that is not a Christian because after all, who's to say that you wouldn't convert them? That's not what he's saying here at all. He's saying this. These were people that were Jews. These were people that were not Christians when they got married. And then one obeyed the gospel at some point in time after they were married. And Paul said, if they be pleased to dwell with thee, stay with them. And so on. Because who's to say that you might have an opportunity to save them too? But you know... We need to not forget that the lives of faithful Christians are examples to the lost world. Regardless of the opposition that may be before us, we must never draw back. Isn't it sad tonight? Isn't it sad? We all know someone. I know far too many. I know you do too. I know far too many people who have started their journey and have drawn back. That's a sad thing. I don't care what's thrown your way. Don't ever draw back. The Hebrew writer said this in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 35. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, while he that shall come will come and will not tarry, now the just shall live by faith. But notice, if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. We find that the Apostle Paul, I believe that's who wrote the Hebrew letter, you know that is trying to give encouragement to the saints to never draw back. The reward comes when you make it through and you get to the other side and you've made it through. You know what he says? That's what happens to those that don't make it through 
but I have a whole lot more confidence about you, you Hebrew brethren. I have confidence that you are not going to draw back, that you are not going to follow the ways of perdition. And so the encouragement is there to never draw back. He shows that God has no pleasure at all in those who begin to follow him and then draw back to the old world of sin. How awful it is where loved ones are dying in sin on this night. You know, I don't know if you've stopped to consider, I know you probably have, the words which say it is better to have never known than to have known, have obeyed the gospel, have become a Christian, and have drawn back. Can you imagine what that's like in the eyes of God? Oh, there are those that may never hear the gospel and shame on us because of that. There are people that will be lost because of ignorance and shame on us for not taking the gospel to the world and all that. But I'm going to tell you something, folks. There's going to be a lot of folks that are going to be lost in, the, in a devil's hell because they began to build but did not finish. Boy, that's sad. That's sad tonight. Don't draw back. You remember some very, very interesting verses of Scripture that Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 about the concept of drawing back. The Bible says, And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead. But go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee. But let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's break these down a little bit. Break down a few things that Jesus said. He said that there was an individual who had decided to follow Jesus. He speaks of two people. Jesus speaks of two men. They actually decided to follow Jesus. The first one says what seems to be a reasonable request. He says, Lord, I will follow thee, but just let me go and bury my father first. You know, I will say this. Maybe you have always had a complete understanding of that phrase. I have to admit, I have not always had a complete understanding of that phrase. And I did not always have a complete understanding of the phrase that Jesus says, next, now I believe that I do. You see, this man said, let me go and bury my father. That's all I ask. And when I'm done with that, I'm going to come back and I'm going to follow you. But Jesus responded and said, let the dead bury the dead. I understand that it was a Jewish custom that when an individual living under the old law, under that old law, if he had a responsibility toward the dead, 
he was freed temporarily from all other acts of service and all other things that would be required of him. In other words, the other precepts and so on would take a back seat to his responsibility to go on and care for the dead. But Jesus responds like this. Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Well, first of all, the context here, this man's father, as understood, was probably still alive, but very sick, maybe very feeble and very old. And what this man was asking is, I'll come, but I want to put it off just a little while, and I'm going to put it off so that I can be there to take care of the responsibility that I have as a Jewish young man for my dead father when it happens. Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. Here's what I didn't understand. I didn't understand how all that fit. But you see, there are two types, and we all know this, of death. There's spiritual dead, and there's physical dead. And Jesus, in one little sentence, touches on both. You know what he says? You let the spiritually dead go bury the physically dead. On the flip side of that, you are not spiritually dead. You are spiritually alive. And because you are, you have a responsibility of going out and preaching about the kingdom. In other words... Jesus is saying to this man, don't let anything in the flesh physically come in the way of your service spiritually. You know, I look at that and I think, well, that was kind of a reasonable request he was asking, wasn't it? What about the next fellow? The next fellow says, I'll follow you, Lord. I surely will. He was willing to do it. He doesn't even ask for a long period of time that he wants to himself before he comes. He just says this, let me go home and bid them farewell. Isn't that reasonable? In the flesh, it seems like it would be. It, in the flesh, it would seem like Jesus would say, that's okay, go say your goodbyes and then come on. This man was not saying, I'm not going to do it for a long period of time. He wasn't uncertain about his service. He just said this, I will do it. I will follow. I will obey. I will preach it. I will do all of that. I just want to go say goodbye to my family first. Reasonable? Jesus said, any man that puts his hand to the plow and looks back, is not fit for the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus thought about that. You know why? Because if you look back, you will draw back. And if you draw back and you quit, you will be lost. I know we spend a lot of time talking about our commitments. Daryl did this morning. I appreciate that. Why do we keep doing that? Aren't these words glaring to you? It tells me that if anything gets in the way of my service, I am not fit for the kingdom of God. That's what it says. What lesson is Jesus teaching you and I from those words expressed so long ago? Here it is. You grab onto that plow, 
You put your head down if you have to. You don't look side to side. You don't look behind you and you move on. You press on to the mark and you do it all the days of your life. You are spiritually alive. You are not spiritually dead. And don't you dare look back. That's what he's saying. I know that sometimes things happen that cause folks to draw back. I know that. Sometimes various forms of persecution. You know, how many times have you heard either me say or somebody that we're not persecuted like those of old? That's true. But you know something? There are persecutions of some magnitude or else. What did, what did the Bible mean in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12? What did Paul mean then if we don't have persecutions today? He said, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That tells me that that has to include me too. But persecutions may be mild or they might be very strong. How about one? How about ridicule? How about being ostracized? How about being threatened with bodily harm? We've never faced that that I know of. But what about that? What about those that would be arrested and imprisoned, cast into prison because of their faith? Some of these things are reasons why people give for giving up and drawing back. Some even use family problems as reasons for drawing back. I'm going to tell you this. One thing I've come to realize in my short lifetime is it's never, never any good, no good ever comes on the other side when you quit. You heard me say this. I got it from somebody else. I had a brother tell me these very words, quoted me to me the other day. But I had to say, well, you know, I didn't come up with that. I got it from somebody else. He thought it was my dad. I didn't. I got it from another preacher from a sermon he preached in 1966. But the fire that melts the wax will harden the clay. It depends on what you subject the flames to. The trials in our life, I don't care if they're in our family, in the world, in our jobs, or wherever. They are designed to make us better and stronger when we make it through to the other side. But no good ever comes from giving up. You can look at it from a very common way in sports. A man that gives up on his workout is not going to be strong enough when the race comes. A man that quits when the pain comes on him, when it builds up in him and he's got nothing left, and he gives up. Oh, that fellow being a coward dies a thousand deaths because he simply didn't do his best. He drew back. We need the family unit to be strong. We need to lean on one another. And all of us in our families lean on God. Sometimes people say, well, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to stand for what's right. I, I just don't want to rock the boat. I'm going to tell you something tonight, folks. Jesus Christ was a boat rocker. Absolutely. He never had the mind, well, let's just not rock the boat. I'm going to tell you something. Jesus taught love. Jesus was the epitome of love. Jesus was perfect in every way. But I'm going to tell you right now, he wasn't some milk toast man. He's the strongest man that ever lived. And you know what he said? This is a man of love now. This is what he said. Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. 
Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. You know, if the world is too comfortable around us, get this now. If the world is too comfortable around us, it's time to check our behavior. It's time to take stock on our behavior. If I live my life tomorrow and everybody I come in contact with, and I realize when people don't know you and they just see you and so on, you're not going to have that kind of impression. I'll tell you this, though. People that know us and are around us all the time, do they get comfortable around us with their dirty stories? Do they get comfortable around us when they use foul language? Or do they slip and say it and apologize to you? Is the world too comfortable around us? If it is, we need to check our behavior. Because the truly righteous behavior of a Christian will automatically condemn the unrighteous behavior of the sinner in the world, just like this. You don't drink. They drink. You don't lie. They lie. You don't use filthy language, but they do. You are honest, but they are not. You are morally pure, but they are immoral. You worship regularly. They don't. You have an uncompromising faith. They compromise. You give as you've been prospered. They don't give at all. You give unflinching obedience to God, and they obey when it's convenient. They are uncomfortable around us, folks, because you are what they ought to be and are not. You see, your obedience is a condemnation of their disobedience. We often say this. We often say, let's not get too comfortable with the world. That's true. But let us also say this, let's not let the world get too comfortable around us. Our purpose is to live in such a way that others may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven for this reason, so that they would be ashamed in the condition that they're in, so that they will decide to obey right alongside you. That's what it's about. It isn't a holier-than-thou attitude like the world says. You live the Christian life. You stand for what's right. You check your behavior if others are too comfortable in a worldly sense around you. And realize we have a responsibility. The greatest sermon ever preached is the life of a Christian.
I'm going to tell you something. I know some sisters that have lived their life, all their life, some older sisters, that their sermon without them saying a word is as loud as any preacher has ever stood, is as eloquent as any man has ever stood before a body of people and proclaimed and preached for any given amount of time. That's the greatest sermon ever. The life of a Christian. In closing, one man wrote this. He said, My life shall touch a dozen lives before the day is done, leave countless marks for good or ill, ere sets the evening sun. This is the wish I always wish, the prayer I always pray. Lord, may my life help other lives it touches along the way. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.